You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Thank you. I'm curious, what is the weird thing you got to do? I mean, what's that going to be? Key. Uh, the deal is a no questions asked, which means I literally just have to do whatever they say, okay, no questions all right. asked. All right. Uh, so. Junior high choice. That's not fun. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> that's not going to be pretty. That's for sure. Save the boy, okay? Get him out of this. Good. Well, good morning and happy 4th of July weekend. This is just a great time for us to be together. Just love what God does in your life, been able to see that. I mean, to have a front row seat and people's lives being changed is probably the most exciting place to be, to see people come to faith in Jesus, to be baptized in water, filled with God's Holy Spirit. Just so many amazing things happen, and that's why I love studying the book of Acts, because there are, there are stories that are just saturating the book of Acts for us that really talk about the miracle-working power of Jesus. Uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to give a shout out to my dad. My dad turns 92 today, 92 years old. Man, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. That's a picture. He, uh, he was the 1955 most valuable player in what is now called the Pac-12. This was back when it wasn't a Pac anything. So uh, he, he was, and, and, and he, he's just a great guy, and we, uh, we just love him. We're going to go I think watch a Dodger game with him the, this afternoon for his birthday. And so just thank you for your prayers. We really appreciate you praying for my mom and I, uh, for Annette, family, all of us. We just really appreciate that. So would you do this with me? Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you today for what you're doing in our lives and that you're filling us and you're touching us, you're changing us. We just continue to invite the changing power of your Holy Spirit to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and we say amen. Well, for me, being confined has always been a problem. In grade school, when the teacher would have me stand in the corner, I think they call it a timeout now. Is that what they call it? Just kind of fancy it up a little bit. It wasn't a timeout when they sent me to the corner. It was, go stand in the corner. That's what it was. And what they wanted to do was kind of isolate you from everyone else. There was always a little bit of shame involved with it, you know, where when I grew up there, you know, they just wanted to shame you a little bit. But when I got in the corner, it was that sense of being confined, that I, that I couldn't move. I couldn't go anywhere. It would drive me crazy. And that really has carried over for most of my life. Feeling a bit claustrophobic in those kinds of situations. Uh, when I got older, uh, I, I remember I felt confined. One summer, I spent 12 weeks in a leg cast. 12 weeks. It happened to be that summer that my folks had an in-ground pool installed. So thank you very much. I could not enjoy that in-ground pool. But I felt so confined. The worst thing about it is I couldn't play my favorite sport of all time during that summer, which is baseball. I had to go. I had to... It was, I can't, I'm crying right now because I, I had to go and sit on the bench. I just felt like I was useless, that I really didn't have anything to contribute. I'm not a great cheerleader, uh, so I tried. I, I went, I tried, I tried to, you know, cheer my team on, but it didn't work because I, I wanted to be in the game. You know, I wanted to be where the action was. I didn't want to watch. I wanted to play. I wanted to contribute, and during that time, I had have these dreams. Maybe this has happened to you. I've had these dreams where I just was running. 
you know, in your dreams. You just run. I was running fast. I was running free. I was running unleashed. I was just having a, a blast. And then you wake up, reality hits you. You're in a cast. You can't run. And then that depression sets in. And you're going, oh, my goodness. I want to go run. I want to I live life unleashed. Well, in the book of Acts, that's what we see here. Uh, we see lives lived unleashed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. There's no longer the cast of religion. There's no longer the, the confinements that used to be there because God's Holy Spirit has come in and he's filled these men and women, boys and girls, with the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's really what we read about here. They were unleashed to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. Go, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples that make disciples. We can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that when we are restricted and confined by religious rules. We can't do that. We need to be filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit to carry out the mission that he's given us. And it is the Holy Spirit filling us that makes a difference. This is where we find our freedom. And we're celebrating freedom for a nation, a country, the greatest nation on the planet this, this, this week. We're celebrating its freedom. And in Acts, we see freedom abounding in the book of Acts. So would you do this with me? Would you open your Bible, if you haven't already, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We're going to have the scripture on the overhead. We also have blue Bibles in the sanctuary around you. You can find one. If you don't have a Bible and you get a blue Bible, hold on to it. It's yours. We want you to keep it. We want you to have God's word in your hands. So the whole book of Acts records for us these unleashed, unconfined stories about the disciples turning the world upside down. And Jesus did this by using people who were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what I love is it, it makes the book even, even more enticing. I think more remarkable is the kind of people that Jesus used for such an extraordinary kind of task. I love this. And you're going to find this out in this particular chapter. In Acts chapter 4, you're going to find out the kind of people that God just enjoyed and loved using. Using for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Using for seeing signs and wonders. It's really amazing. The early church changed the world not because there were a handful of highly educated, politically powerful, ultra-wealthy influencers. That didn't happen. In fact, it was the furthest thing from the truth, not even close. Look at Acts chapter 4, and when you look there, look at verse 13. It's, it's one of my favorite in the whole book of Acts. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, that's the religious leaders, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, just ordinary people doing an extraordinary thing filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they had spent time with Jesus. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. But right there, I think you have the capstone of this chapter. I think you probably can figure out where this is all going. It's how God wants to use you. I, I raise my hand. I sign up for the ordinary people. I say, yep, I'm, I'm one of those. I, 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 I'm not... I'm not rich, I'm not ultra-intelligent, I have none of this going for me, but I am ordinary, and God, if you want to use ordinary people, I'm here. And maybe you would say the same thing, Lord, you can use me because, because I'm ordinary. Ordinary people used by God in extraordinary ways, and I believe that we have an opportunity now, unlike any other time, I, I think in, in human history, we have an opportunity now to bring the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to places that are parched and dried and are dying. 
People's lives and their souls depend on us sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Letting people know about hope. Letting them know about peace. Letting them know about what every soul desires. Every soul desires was created, was made in the image of God to desire salvation for themselves. To desire uh, the fullness of God's spirit in them. And so when we look at this passage, we recognize that we're in this time similar to those days where people need to want to know Jesus. But the only thing that usually gets in the way, it, it, at least it does for me, and it's not, it's not the things around us. It's not the politics. It's not the devil. It's not the world. It's us. It's me. I find myself to probably be the, the, the greatest stumbling block of myself. I used to have a, a, a sign on my mirror. I get up every morning and it says, you're looking at the problem. And I thought, you know what? That, that, is, so, that is so true. I'm, I'm looking at the problem, right? There is the problem. Remember, there's the problem. You see, it's when we disqualify ourselves. It's when we give in to the feeling of being disqualified. When you believe that lie, for whatever reasons. Maybe you don't think you're intelligent enough or rich enough or whatever it is. Whatever it is, you disqualify yourself. And if that's not a feeling that goes deep, then being unqualified, it's bad enough when other people come along and tell you you're unqualified. I mean, you already believe it. I mean, if you, if you buy into that, that lie, you already believe it. You, you think, man, I'm, I'm not qualified for any of this. And then you hear people start to throw words at you, uh, thoughts at you that really, in your mind, solidify the, the, the thought that you're not qualified. I put a few of those words together. The unwords, you know, the I'm unqualified. Well, I, I put a few together here. Untalented, uninspiring unexperienced, any of them hit home yet, unprepared, uncertain, unemployed. And, and then there are those words that, that actually get to me personally. You know, what, for whatever reasons, we have those that just kind of hit, you know, hit the mark and make you kind of cringe inside, unworthy. That, that's one. You know, when you hear that, you're just unworthy. And there's times, you know, there are times throughout the whole, the, the week that I live, I, uh, I think, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know, I'm unequipped, there's another one, unequipped is a big one, I mean, when you go through hard times, go through difficult times, you know, uh, those last three or four years that we've gone through, I don't know how many times I thought about that one, you know, man, I'm, this, I'm in over my head, and I didn't want to tell you all that then, but I'm telling you now, I was in over my head, you're just unequipped, that's the way you, you really feel. How about this uncompelling, you know? That's, that's another one. It's that same feeling that you have when you get sent to the corner, you know? It's that same feeling you have when someone says, you, you go take a time out. You know exactly what they're saying. You know, you just, feel, you just don't feel qualified. But the difference maker in all of this, now listen to this, the difference maker in all of this is what can happen when unqualified, ordinary people serve an extraordinary God. You see, there's the difference maker right there. Because we know that when we follow God, nothing is impossible. Psalm 37 says, the steps of a righteous man and woman are ordered by the Lord. Let me ask you something. Let me, let me throw this out to you. What if, what if you committed, when you got out of bed every single day, 
and believed that your steps were ordered by the Lord? What if you committed to that? What if you just said, you know, today I'm going to get out of bed and today all my steps are ordered of the Lord. All, all, of, all, all that I do today is ordered by the Lord. Do you imagine the difference we could make? Imagine that we would be people who would literally turn the world upside down. Why? Because we would commit ourselves to be ordered by the Lord. Amazing things can happen. Now in chapter 4 is actually a continuation of Acts chapter 3. So you can put these two together and you can read them. You can read them kind of as one story. It's where Peter and John are, are going to the temple to pray and they were doing ordinary things. You know, they were going to the temple. They were going to pray. That's what they did every day. So they're going there. And on their way there, there's someone uh, that's begging, someone who's lame, someone who wanted their attention. And what happens is these two ordinary men on an ordinary day but God's going to work out in this extraordinary plan. They encounter a man who, who's been lame, not just for a short period of time. He's been lame for 40 years. Peter looks him straight in the eye. I love what it says there. It says, and Peter looked him straight in the eye. Now, how many know that, that that's convicting when people do that? You know, they just looked him straight in the eye and he said, you know, I don't have any silver. I don't have any gold. But what I do have, I'm going to give it to you. And this is what I do have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And immediately it says the man jumped up. He rose up. He walked. He says the Bible says he was walking. He was leaping. He was praising God. That's what happened. And you see this amazing thing happened here. It happened in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Would you just remember the power of the name of Jesus? I don't know if you thought about that recently or, you know, when, when you thought about it last. But to think about the power that is in the name of Jesus. And that we're going to remember that through this message, that there's power in the name of Jesus. So there's this excitement that happens in Acts chapter 3. And like anything in our lives, maybe you've experienced it, there's excitement. But then kind of reality sets in. And that's where Acts chapter 4 comes. Because Peter and John are still preaching, and this is fresh on everyone's mind. The lame man was probably there right with them. And this is where the Sadducees and the religious leaders step in, and, and they order Peter and John not to speak in that powerful name of Jesus. That, that, that's what happens here. Now, I want you to do something if you, if you have the ability, if you're okay with marking in your Bible. But Acts chapter 4 is actually the official place that church historians say that the persecution of the early church started right there on that day. And then it lasts for 300 years. It begins here and moves through some of the most horrific, horrific persecutions. Nero, a few years later, the last one, the last emperor to really persecute the church was a guy named Diocletian. And then you find these stories. Have you read the tales of the martyrs before? That's what... That's what this time period, it's during this time period, because for the next 300 years, the church of Jesus Christ would experience some of the worst persecution in its history. Listen, when I say persecution, I don't mean people laughing at you because you have a fish on your bumpers. There's a sticker or people mock you because you may be a Christian or people shun you because you're not like them. Yeah, I get it. That's that that doesn't feel good. That that never feels good. But what we're talking about here, the kind of per persecution we're talking about is beheading. 
and crucifixion and torture. Nero would kill animals and take their fresh skin and sew Christians up in them and then let the other animals go and tear that that Christian apart. They would use them to light up the pathways of, of the Roman walkways during that time. I mean, the Christians were used as torches. That, that's, that's horrible persecution. Now, I, I don't know. We, we're seeing it happen more and more in the world we live in. I mean, you see it around the world. We're more exposed to it. Uh, but if it's ever happened to you, I mean, even when it may get, get close to people calling you names or doing something, it just you have that feeling, you know, it's just kind of in your gut. I remember the last time that happened to me where we were actually traveling, and I bought a suitcase from, from Israel. And so we weren't traveling to Israel. We were traveling somewhere else, and I had my suitcase from Israel, and I, was, uh, I threw it onto the, the luggage rack, you know, and then went and got it when we got to our destination. And I pulled it. I started walking, and I heard my, my daughter-in-law say, Oh, my gosh. And I said, What? She goes, Look. And someone wrote, I mean, big permanent marking, Blank you, Jew. I mean, in deep pin. And I about threw up. I thought, can you imagine if, if you're a Jew? Can you imagine if you're, what you have to experience? And that's, it took three days for me to get over that. Because I'm thinking, can you imagine what the Jewish people might feel or any other minority or any other people groups that are uh, marginalized. You see something like that, and I was just like, I was mad, I was upset, I was hurt, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And it was just someone writing on my, again, just someone writing on my, my suitcase. I, I mean, they didn't punch me or hit me or torture me, but, but it, it felt that way. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. And the priests and the captain, the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You know the gospel always does this? <laughs> Listen, make no mistake that gospel always greatly disturbs people. Why? Uh, because it's a major disruption to the status quo. The gospel always does that. When the gospel's preached or when you live out the gospel, it's a disruptor. Uh, and I'm not just talking about worldly-minded people it disrupts. I'm talking about religiously-minded people it disrupts. And in this case, that's exactly who's being disrupted. It's the religious-minded. And in this case, you see the Sadducees. The word there, disturbed, it means this. It means they were pained. Maybe that's in your translation. They were pained. They were perturbed. They were ticked off. That's really what it says here. The Sadducees, we, we've read about them before. We've read about them in the four Gospels. You've read about the Sadducees. You've read about the Pharisees. But there's something interesting that happens here that I want you to pay attention to. Their roles change a bit. So in, in the Gospels, it was always the Pharisees contending with Jesus. You, you know that. You, the Sadducees were mentioned, but it was mainly the Pharisees. Now, we get to the book of Acts, and they change roles. The Pharisees, you don't hear much about anymore. It's just the Sadducees you hear about now. And, and there's, a, there's a reason why this takes place. There's something that happens here in Acts. The primary enemy uh, of the early church, the religious leaders, were the Sadducees. So we need to know, who are these Sadducees? I mean, they're playing with our guys and gals here. They're messing with them. I want to know who they are and why were they so disturbed? Well, 
first of all, the Sadducees, they were the ruling class of a very aristocratic Jewish population who controlled all that went on. And they were in a heavy alliance with the Roman government. So they were, uh, they, they were sleeping with the Roman government. Let's just say it that way. They, were, they would curry favors with each other to get whatever they wanted. I mean, even the priesthood was controlled by the Roman government. I don't know if you know that, but, but the Sadducees would, would make deals with the Roman government who they wanted to be the high priest that year or for the time to come. Because typically when you're made high priest, you were for a lifetime, but you see the change happens. Why? It's because of the Sadducees and the Roman government. They got together and said, ah, we don't like this person. Let's get someone else in there. We don't like that person. Let's get someone else in there. So these are the Sadducees. Politically, they sided with the Roman government. Theologically, they believed that they were in a messianic era, that, that there was a Messiah coming. Now, I'm going to give them credit. They were right. They just had the wrong person. You see, they were believing that the Messiah was coming. They had reason to believe that because 150 years prior to this, they had someone called Judas Maccabeus that they thought was going to really overthrow the Roman government and all governments, and, and the Jews would now rule Israel. It happened for a short period of time, but then it collapsed as well. And so what you have is you have these people believing these kinds of things, but they also believed in something else. They believed there was no such thing as life after death. They believed there was no such thing in miracles. See, now you see where the problem's going to come now? <laughs> they, they believed that there were no signs. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in any of this. They absolutely did not believe in it. And so because they don't believe in this, now they have a big problem, don't they? Because something happened in chapter 3, and it was a miracle, and someone was healed, and the lame man standing right in front of them, and they've got a problem because they don't believe in it. But, but it happened. And so they're, they're standing there you know, with their mouths open thinking, uh-oh, we're going to have to shut this down. They were religious. Listen, can you imagine this? What's the motive of being religious if there's really not an incentive at the end? And so that's why you understand how sad you see the Sadducees were, you know. <laughs> I waited for a while to tell you that one. I actually wrote that one out. <laughs> but to believe in nothing at the end. Th this was the kind of people that these, uh, these apostles were dealing with. And then look at verses 3 and 4. We're just going to walk through this a little bit. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message, I love this, many who heard the message believed. So the number of men <clears throat> who believed grew to about 5,000. So let's say realistically the number was probably around 15,000. You give women and children, you throw them in the mix there, and you have this number. So this is one of my favorite lines in the book of Acts. And I love it. And maybe you can repeat this in your head as well. But many who heard the message believed. I, I, every time I read this, every time I read this, I remember why I'm here. Every time I read this, I remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just have to go to this place. This is what I live for. I understand that not everyone will believe, but some will believe. And that, that's what actually stirs up my heart. I know that even in this room, not everyone's going to believe. Uh, I, I know that. But, but for those who believe, I, I tell you, there's nothing that, that brings out the passion in me. This is a driving passion. It really is. There's something about seeing people's lives changed. 
to see people believe in Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to tell others about Jesus, and then to disciple others in Jesus. There's nothing greater than this to be part of. And so when I read this, I, I just stands out in bold print to me. And, and a number believed. They heard the message and they, they believed. They believed in Jesus. So how did they believe? Well, we know it's the work of God's word. And we know it's the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. You can't be saved on your own. It, it's the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. But you do have a part. There's a partnership that goes on here. And I, I was thinking about what's my partnership in this? You know, what, what role do I play? What role do you play in people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, God's word. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Because everyone that I, I meet or know, I want them to believe. So you, I, I'm giving you my lens, the lens I look through. When I meet a non-believer, I think of them as pre-Christians. So I don't, I don't think of people as, as pagans. I don't think of people as, I don't think of people that way. Now, maybe you do, but I don't. I look at them and I think, oh, wouldn't they be a good Christian? <laughs> yeah, I think, wow, wow. I want, I, so I, I believe that everyone I encounter, I believe that they're going to be Christians. To me, they are Christians in waiting. They're Christians in waiting. Now, I want you to take that posture just for a moment. And I want you to think about it the same way I'm thinking about it. These people are Christians in waiting. The gospel can save everyone. Jesus can save everyone. Okay, keep, remember that. Jesus can save everyone. And Christians, uh, unbelievers are Christians in waiting. So what am I going to do? What's my part? Pray for them. Pray for them. Every day. I pray for them. What do I do now? I, I want to be present with them. If, if, I, if I can be present with them, now maybe God has me praying for someone in Africa or someone uh, in a distant place. I'm going to pray for them. But if it's possible for me to be present in their presence, I'll find my way to get invited to something. I'll find my way to move in because I, I want Jesus in me is the hope of glory. Jesus in you is the hope of glory. And I believe that with all my heart. And so when, I, when I'm in their presence, and then here, here's maybe the most important thing, and I want to I throw this out to you. Hope for them. Non-believers know if you've talked about them behind their back. When you're with your group of people, Christian people, and and you're vilifying unbelievers. You're, you're speaking in a derogatory way about people who don't maybe comply with Scripture. Maybe they don't comply sexually with Scripture. Maybe they don't comply theologically with Scripture. And, and you're chewing on them and you're ragging on them. With, how, how then can you go and look someone in the eye and say you really want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ? How do you do that? We have a rule here on this campus. When we're in meetings, especially with what we've gone through, there is no derogatory conversations about anybody. Whether they politically fit you or not, you do not talk about people. Because someday, they're a Christian in waiting. That's what I believe. Someday, you might be sitting next to them on an airplane, and it's going to be your job to tell them about Jesus. After what? You've talked about them all the time? Made fun of them? How's that work? It doesn't. Friends, we do control this. 
And James says this is the most, if you can control this, you control the world. That's the power of the tongue. I want to hope for them. If I really believe Jesus can save anyone, why talk about them behind their back? I want them to know that there's hope. And I can be the vessel of hope. I can be the messenger of hope. I can do that. You can do that. Just hope for them. But keep praying. Keep being present and keep hoping for. That's how it happens. And we we see that these people who come to believe were counted. It says 3,000 at Pentecost. I love this. 5,000 here. Uh, Hey, the early church took attendance. You know, we've kind of put that away. No, no. We don't do that anymore. They did it. You know why they did it? Because they're people and people matter. And I think about who wrote it. Just think about, remember Dr. Luke wrote this? So makes sense. It's a doctor. Yeah, there was, let's see, there were about 5,000, best I can count right here. You know, he's, he's paying attention to details and he gives this account. And then it goes on a little further in verses five through seven. It says this, and the next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Those people sound familiar to you? They will in a minute, because they are familiar to us. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? Do you do this? Now, right here, the religious leaders are setting a trap by asking that question. This is not a random question. This is a prescribed question that is given in the Old Testament to anyone in the Old Testament. When someone comes and performs signs and wonders, the first thing you have to ask them is, what name do you come by? By what power do you do these signs and and wonders? That is actually prescribed in the Old Testament that you would do that. And if you answer any other name but Jehovah Yahweh, you were stoned to death. So, these guys are rocked and loaded. (laughs) They're looking at them, and they're asking this question because they're trying to get them to commit. I love it. I love what happens here. By what name? And then what do Peter and John do? Peter and John, particularly Peter here, standing before the same religious, listen to this, They're standing before the same religious leaders that Jesus stood before. These are the same people. Now, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. But wouldn't you think, okay, we've done this before. (laughs) Caiaphas and Annas are thinking, wait, we've been here. We've done this. We did this with the Jesus fella. And now we're doing it with the Jesus fella followers. Wow. I don't know. Was there a tinge of conviction? What was going on there? Because we've been here before. <clears throat> You've been here before in the life of Jesus. But here's the difference right here. I love this. I'm going to only read this part of verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that right there. I'm not going to read any further than that. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Before, Peter was outside by a fire. And now he's inside on fire with the Holy Spirit. I love the irony of all this. I mean, he's from the outside looking in, and, 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 and he's 
denying Jesus. And just days later, he's on the inside looking at the very faces that Jesus looked at. And he's not going to do that again. He's not going to deny Jesus again. (laughs) It says, and now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a, a boldness here. Look at what it says here. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called, uh, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I can guarantee you this. Those Sadducees did not expect that one to come. They were still thinking shy Peter, timid Peter, afraid Peter. But he says this. So what does he do? Friends, he turns the tables on them. That's what he does. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you just imagine, he's, he's holding on to the promise that Jesus gave him a few days earlier. Do you know what Jesus told him? Looked him in the eyes and said, Peter, you are going to stand before the religious leaders. Don't worry about what you are going to say. My spirit will fill you and you will say it and here it happens. It's the promise of Jesus being fulfilled. Peter turns the tables on this, these religious leaders. Here's a guy who who couldn't walk, and now he can. And you're accusing us. That's what he's saying. You're accusing us of that? (laughs) You're accusing us of doing something nice and kind? And you, you, you crucified Jesus. Wow. I mean, that had to light their hair on fire. I mean, he wasn't making friends there, really. I mean, that's not what he was about here. He He was telling the truth. I wonder if these, again, religious leaders had flashbacks to the trial of Jesus right at this point. Do you know what the greatest argument for the power of Jesus Christ, do you know the greatest argument? A changed life. That's not our theology. It, really, it, it isn't. There are people that don't know Jesus that can argue the scripture better than you can, better than I can. It's not your theology, it's a changed life. It's that your life has changed, your life has transformed, and it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not telling you to absent theology. I'm not doing that. But I am saying, have you ever really sat down and won an atheist over because of your theology? I, I, I haven't. I, I have seen atheists come to Christ because they've watched me live, and they've watched you live. I've seen them come to Jesus that way. Why? They're looking at you going, that's a changed life. So these, these Sadducees, are, they're in a conundrum right here because there is a changed life. A man has been healed, and Peter is not the same Peter anymore. Lives are being changed by Jesus Christ, and these guys are figuring, trying to figure out what's going on here. And you know what? You think back, and they faced this before. Remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead? Again, that phrase, and many believed, but some didn't. Remember where those some that didn't went? To these guys. It says, and some went and reported them to, to, to the Sadducees. <laughs> so these guys know what's happening here, but it's your testimony. Hear this. It's your testimony that makes a difference. It's your boldness and courage to tell people what Jesus has done in you. You don't have to add or take away from that. 
You just tell him what he's done. How's he saved you? How's he touched your life? What has he done for you? That's what happens here. That's how lives get changed. And then it goes on. It says, Peter continues, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become a cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter, could you just clear that up for us a little bit? That's about as clear and as straightforward as it gets. Peter is quoting a messianic prophecy. You can write this down. It's out of Psalm 118. And in the book of Psalms, there are actually 16 messianic prophecies. 16 prophecies that speak of Jesus coming. This is one of them. Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected. Where did that come from? Well, Psalm 118. But there's also something else that runs parallel to this. There's a rabbinical story that's told about the building of Solomon's temple. And if you've ever been in a place where you've seen, like in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, the magnificent building of Herod in the second temple, uh, we, 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 are, we understand what happened when they built the first one under Solomon. They were so precise with their measurements. They didn't use concrete. They, didn't use, they could just barely slide a knife under the blocks, the stones that were laid on top of each other. A marvelous engineering phenomenon. Incredible when they built this first temple. It was incredible. It was amazing what, how they did it. But they were building and they would have to quarry the stones off site because they didn't want to disrupt what was happening on site because on site is sacred ground. It's sacred territory. So they were doing it off site and they were bringing in, which even makes it more marvelous. And so they were bringing in these massive stones that were quarried out and they looked at one and it didn't fit. They, they were thinking, where did this come from? What's this stone supposed to do? They weren't really checking with the plan so much, but they said, you know what? Let's just put this aside. Get this out of here. Let's keep going. And so they keep going. They continue to build. They get to the end, and they notice there's one piece missing. And they went back to their drawings, and they went, oh, the piece that we rejected is the capstone. It's the cornerstone. And they brought it back, and that tied everything together. The old and the new. The old is gone, the new has come. It's the capstone that was rejected that's brought back. And, and here's what we know. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. Is it narrow? Absolutely. <laughs> People say, you're so narrow-minded. I say, yeah, I am. Because I believe Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. That's it. There's no other way. There is no other way to salvation. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to redemption except through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice the action words that these religious leaders used in this verse 13. It says they saw. What did they see? <laughs> they saw the boldness and courage that was absent before. Some people say, well, Peter was bold. No, he wasn't bold. He was impetuous before. He was fearful before, but now there's a boldness and a courage about his life because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So they saw his boldness and courage. The, the, the second word is they perceived. What did they perceive? They perceived uneducated and untrained people. Now, not in the way we might think of it. They were uneducated and untrained in the way of the law and religion. They, they, they noticed that these people were unschooled. They didn't go to rabbinical school. They weren't studied people who sat under the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were from Galilee. 
And so they're looking at him saying, how did they know the word so well? How did, how did Peter even know to quote Psalm 118 here? Because he's unschooled. He's unschooled. They were calling him the word idios. Guess where that word comes from? The word we get idiot from. It wasn't used that way. It was just saying they're ignorant. They, don't, they shouldn't know these things. And yet they do know these things. And then what did they recognize? The third thing they recognized here. I love this. That they had been with Jesus. People will know when you're with Jesus. People will know when you've spent time with Jesus. That's another favorite verse of mine or phrase of mine. Is they recognize him because they spent time with Jesus. What did these religious leaders conclude? <laughs> that they were ordinary men who had been with Jesus. People notice that. People see that. Listen, there are people who know the word of God. There are. But then there are people who know the God of the word. You see, I want both. I want to know the word, but I want to know the God of the word. I want to have a relationship with him. And then it says this, Acts 4, 14 through 18. But since they could not see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? I can give you the answer. Repent and get saved. That's what you can do. They, 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 then they asked, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we, ca we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Mark it right there, verse 18, first legislation against the gospel of Jesus Christ, right there. That's what happens. There is power in the name of Jesus that Satan fears. There's power in the name of Jesus that our world hates. The name of Jesus is a disrupting force. I want you to try something. When you're in a mix of people, maybe at work, maybe your coworkers, <clears throat> maybe family members, relatives, and, and, and those that don't know Jesus. Listen, we can talk about faith and it doesn't really mess people up. We can talk about praying for people and people, you know, they're okay with that. We can talk about a lot of different things. But, but next time you're in a crowd, just drop the name of Jesus. See what happens. Just say, in the name of Jesus. Just say it. Yikes. Well, I thought we were going to play it safe here. Let's just talk about our religion. Religion is safe to talk about. In the name of Jesus, not so safe. See, it didn't say here, don't be Christians anymore. It didn't say that. It said, don't use that name anymore. Because they knew how powerful the name of Jesus was. They knew that it's central to who we are. They know it is our power. It is our strength. It is in the powerful name of Jesus. See, what happens here is they cross the line. These, these lawmakers, they, they cross the line. And here's where, where it finishes. And I'll finish here. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or, or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is our testimony. After further threats, they let them go. That, that was what they were going to. We're just going to threaten you. 
they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Wow. The sign spoke for itself. The healing spoke right here for itself. Peter and John appealed to the supreme of all supreme courts right here. Not the Supreme Court of the United States. Not the Supreme Court of Israel. Not the Supreme Court of the Sadducees. They're appealing to the Supreme Court, God being the supreme and sovereign judge. Now, notice in verse 22, this man had been lame for 40 years. I like this. Think about it. Jesus walked by that man. Jesus went there. He didn't heal him. I don't know how to explain everything here, but Jesus didn't heal everyone. So Jesus walks right by him, doesn't heal him, and Jesus was in and out of this place every day when he was in Jerusalem. You know what I'm thinking? This is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking thinking Jesus walked by him, looked at him, and said, yeah, your day's coming, dude. I got some boys that are going to be talking to you pretty soon. But I'm not going to do this now because they're going to do it because I've told them. I've promised them that they are going to do greater things than me. And this is going to be one that they're going to put on their resume. Wow. Sometimes I even wonder if he whispered it to the guy. Hey, just be patient. They'll come back. They'll get you. we'll, We'll cover you. Jesus does that. He he waits, and what happens is the time, his time of healing would come, but it wouldn't come then. There's a time and a place for everything. Did you see this, this line that they crossed by saying you can't speak in the name of Jesus? Do you know this? If they could have done both, they would have. Peter and John would have done both. They would have obeyed God. They would have obeyed the government. You know why we know that? Because Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You, you submit to those that are in authority over you. You do that. But when they tell you not to speak in the name of Jesus, that's when the lines cross. I know that's my line, by the way. You tell me not to speak in the name of Jesus, then you might as well crucify me. Really. Because that's a line that's crossed right there. Peter and John wanted to obey. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, study it. Submit to those that are in authority over you. Well, in this case, they were saying, you can't say the name of Jesus. They said, that's it. We have to obey God. We can't obey you. And from then on, you see them chased. You see what happens. So today, as we come to the table, the Lord's table, I'll invite our worship team to come forward. And I'm going to have our prayer teams come forward when we take communion. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to share communion together. But when you go to a prayer team, if you need someone to pray for healing, physical healing in you, your body, or, or you, you want them to pray for someone you love and know, for their healing, would you do that? Just feel like we want to pray for those that are sick today. Let's do that. We want to pray for those that are hurting physically. We want the Lord to heal them and touch them. The Lord can touch us. He can heal us. It's power in the name of Jesus. So we come in the power of Jesus' name. Would you remember when you come to the table, would you know the price was paid? The power of Jesus' name is given to you now because of what is represented here, the body and blood. You see, before the body and blood, we didn't have that power in Jesus' name. Now, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, he, he, he laid his life down. He rose again. And now, there's power in the name of Jesus. 
Just say out loud with me, in the name of Jesus. Just say that. In the name of Jesus. Say it again. In the name of Jesus. Now say, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Remember that the bread represents the broken body. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. That together brings power. We pray in Jesus' name. For whatever it is you're facing right now, in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, no more shame. In the name of Jesus, let there be emotional healing. In the name of Jesus, let there be mental healing and restoration. In the name of Jesus, where your, your past plagues you and dogs you, in Jesus' name, you are forgiven in the power of Jesus' name. Father, we come to you right now in the power of Jesus' name. And we thank you for your healing, for your touch in us. Lord, the testimonies that we will tell and we are telling about what you've done for us are so numerous. There's so many. Let us share our stories with others to those Christians in waiting. Let us love them. Let us hope for them. Lord, let us share the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.